Fun fact about Bron. Most of us were terrified of ghosts, dinosaurs, or being kicked out of a group of friends as kids. Bron was terrified of her friend's dad showing up and deciding to marry her. She had repetitive dreams that Janine Douglas's dad was standing at the bottom of her driveway in a tuxedo holding a tiny wedding dress. And to be fair, it's actually one of the more terrifying things I've ever heard. It was really horrifying. I was convinced. They all wanted to marry me. time of uncertainty and fear. We don't know what the trajectory of our households, community, country or the world will be. Psychologist David Destino told the New York Times that feelings in the world of COVID-19 were a mix of mixed calibrated emotion and limited knowledge. In short, we don't know what we feel, so we're feeling it all. And like a lot of things, we're dealing with it differently. Personally, I'm dealing with it by taking up new hobbies. Some of my favourites have been learning my kids' middle names, <laughs> discovering what I look like without personal grooming, my legs look amazing, my hair's never looked better, and finding new places in my house to hide from the sound of my partner's chewing. Oh, it's a wild ride, guys, but I'm still really optimistic, and I genuinely love this slowing down. Uh, but... I get, um, I get it, and sometimes I wonder why I'm so zen about this. Mm, I'm, I'm dealing with it really differently every day. So I'm trying to switch off from the 24-hour news cycle, which I was gobbling up before, but I'm definitely embracing, embracing unhealthy things like the caffeine to wine liquid cycle every day and then oscillating between finding some really manufactured toys like autumn leaves, you know, like, oh, that beautiful leaf that the world is ending, <laughs> like staring at my kids when they're asleep. But then I also feel really terrified and adrift. Do you feel sad like winter leaves? <laughs> no, we thought we... <laughs> so we thought it would help to ask an expert about how we feel right now in the context of the past and what an expert. She's lived through World War II, polio and diphtheria pandemics two recessions, the Cold War, three kids, nine grandkids and too many great-grandkids to count, including her namesake, Claire's eldest daughter, and now COVID-19. So welcome to the podcast, Grandma. Yay. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Patricia. How are you going, Grandma? What, what, tell us about what your life looks like in ISO right now. Well, at the moment, I'm very hopeful. Everyone seems to be feeling brighter about it all. We're doing pretty well. So I'm not too badly off, quite happy and comfortable. The weather's lovely. And we can all look forward to what hopefully will be a lot better soon. And what's your normal day look like, Grandma? So have you, have you been able to, I guess, see, see anybody you know or hang out with anybody? Or are you just <laughs> on <No>. your own? <laughs> <laughs> not at all. I'm just um, doing what I normally do without being able to go out except for a little walk, which is good. Lots of other people out walking. Uh, the only person I see is my son, who doesn't live very far away. He comes just for a little while, and his wife, my daughter-in-law, who visits my shopping, and they distance very, very uh, 
sensibly all the time. He's warding me off constantly because they are both out in the real world doing their thing. So that's a bit hard to remember just to stay away from people, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's hard. It's hard for us. Like, I know when I see friends, even when I see Claire in real life, I just am used to giving her a cuddle and her kids a cuddle, but um, it's never that way. And it feels, it feels um, uh, strange, but it also feels quite rude. <laughs> like I know that I feel like someone's going to be. I think I'm going to feel very shy after this. Oh. Uh, you know, saying hello and giving them a kiss or goodbye and a kiss or something. Yeah, and Patricia, you live by yourself, don't you? I do. Yeah, living by myself. So how do you get how do you get your shopping and things? Well, my daughter-in-law, my very nice daughter-in-law, does my shopping for me, which is very good. Uh, I still love to go and shop for myself, though. Yeah. As everybody feels like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know that a lot of people um, who aren't at high risk, I think, they're um, excited about getting out of the house. Yeah. And Wally and I have exactly. arguments about who I'm gets I'm fine with the idea, actually, of going to the shops tomorrow oh. because it all seems much brighter. But after watching television tonight, I think, no, no. Gone this far, I might as well wait a little while longer. Yeah, so what what was it on the telly tonight that you saw that made you feel a bit uneasy? They were just um, going over again the risks involved and the fact that really nobody knows yet what will happen when things are opened up again. Uh, They say the number... I have another son who works in a hospital and hears all this sort of stuff all the time and they don't really know yet what will happen when people mix they're hoping very much that we've done enough isolation for the for there not to be enough contact uh, with the virus left to do great damage but they really don't know how does that uncertainty make you feel grandma i mean i know that you know you've had kind of lung issues in the past but we've had conversations recently where you've said that at the end of this, you're going to live a bit differently. I am. I'm going to live a little, put it that way. <laughs> I had a, <laughs> are you? I had a little um, shock, upset. I thought I was invincible because I'm pretty old and I've been very fortunate to have good health. And all of a sudden I had um, an upset one night and it was a lung problem, clots in the lung, which apparently is... Due to damage as a child, having whooping cough and pneumonia and that kind of stuff, which probably has happened to most people, but in days gone by, people used to die before they got to my age, so they probably didn't serve it. <laughs> and for, for our listeners, Grandma, how old are you? I'm 88. Amazing. I usually have to whisper that because people are having fun. <laughs> but you definitely don't seem it and you don't act it. I no. have been out for lunch with you and you have um, seemed to be the last one standing. Yeah, you drink us under the table, Grandma. Oh, it's amazing. Know, isn't that awful? What a reputation to have. <laughs> no, it's that was one of my, That it's... was one of my um, foremost thoughts when we were knowing that we might have, there might be shortages, <laughs> pardon me, and we might be sort of I thought before this all started that we might be sort of locked up really as you've heard about other 
overseas places. And I was thinking, oh my God, fancy being home with all day and all night with not a glass of wine. No, <laughs> it's, it's the worst. It's actual torture. I think I'm pretty sure it's from a human rights perspective. <laughs> it's a breach of fundamental human rights. <laughs> so after you got sick a couple of years ago, you 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 changed a lot in your life, right? You stopped travelling as much. You did. You were being I a lot did, more careful. <clears throat> as I said before, this thing happened to me in the middle of the night. And it wasn't, it turned out it was fixable. But there's no guarantee it wouldn't happen again. Um, so I was thinking, well, I better not be gadding about or staying in a hotel in a different um, city by myself, which I would have done without hesitation prior to that, in case something like that happens. I mean, the last thing anyone wants, if you're young or old, is that kind of thing happening? Is it bad enough if you're home? <laughs> so I decided I wouldn't do any of those things anymore. But after this business of being not allowed to go and finding out that it, all sorts of people can die quite suddenly from a thing like this that pops up without any warning, we might as well throw caution to the wind. Let's go to Bali. Let's get braids. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not that brave. <laughs> I wouldn't have gone there anyway. Let's get a tattoo, Grandma. It's time. <laughs> you look amazing with barley braids and a tattoo. <laughs> I've always said it. And a bikini, yes. <laughs> Well, one of the reasons, Patricia, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. One of the reasons that we desperately wanted your um, perspective is because what Claire and I are grappling with is everyone's, um, I guess, the different ways that people are coping with this. And mostly uh, we're dealing with young people's perspectives. So we're dealing with our kids' perspectives, which so this is like tiny, tiny, tiny people, so five- and six-year-olds, four-year-olds, one-year-olds who have very little understanding and who seem to be coping with it relatively well uh, because they don't know anything about the world and why would this be any different. Uh, And then we deal with our friends who are in their 30s and 40s who are dealing with it less well. Uh, They're dealing with it like this is legitimately the end of the world, some people, Um, and I personally personally am struggling with um that kind of catastrophic mindset and what one of one reason why I'm so excited we're having you on is because you as an 88 year old woman who has seen much more of the world than any of us um have uh you will be able to give us some uh, some insight onto what does a catastrophe actually look like and does this actually compare to anything you have seen in your lifetime well, it, there's no doubt it is a, a, a great catastrophe, as you put it, and so um, uncertain for everybody. Nobody's really sure whether it will go away or what will happen or whether they'll catch it or not. As you said, young people are getting it too. But um, the, the few months before the Second World War were very, very frightening because I was only a little girl in um, what was I, seven? And, of course, everyone expected it for a year or so before that, and that was terrifying, which is probably what's happening to young people now. They don't know what might happen. Uh, but I can well understand young people. They think, they think their life might be shortened or very different. Um, so 
he's more worried, and they're worried about their employment and so on. Yeah, I think, and when you say you were worried when you were seven, and I feel like what people perhaps, and I might be just assuming, but what people were, like you said, were worried about was their lives being shortened, whereas... I don't, I don't see that as being a huge concern with people, uh, you know, in their 20s and 30s. I honestly think the biggest concern with them is employment. It's a financial situation, yes. for, especially in Australia. So, I agree. I agree entirely. And they have no conception of, and neither do I really, uh, but obviously I was born in the middle of the Depression and um, lots and lots of people had no, absolutely nothing. Um, we must have been able to scrape by. But I know uh, my husband's aunt and family lost their home and had to come and live with his mother, um, whole family, for a long, long while till they got back on their feet. Or not on their feet, but enough to rent a house, you know, enough, enough money coming in to be able to rent something. And the people who lived opposite us, my family, um, turned their house into two to take in another family paying rent, people they didn't know, and they didn't know whether they'd ever get out of the Depression either. What did it look and like, then, Grandma? Like, I mean, you've told me stories before about, like, what, what kind of frugality you guys had to have, like, in terms of, you know, making a meal stretch and having oh, enough. Like, tell, yeah. tell us about that. Well, um, nothing like the the way we all um, live today. Um, you know, for instance, I, I'm astonished at a leg of lamb. Uh, we, you would have a, if you were fortunate enough to have a leg of lamb, it would be Sunday lunch, and then there'd be plenty for a salad, cold meat for dinner that night, and then there'd be a, a cottage pie or a little curry or something made the next day or so. And the leg of lamb wouldn't have been any bigger. So obviously people had very much smaller servings. You know, today a leg of lamb is used once and that's it. Oh, yeah, one meal for sure. I will <laughs> eat, I will suck the bone dry. <laughs> so even... people must have, um, you know, had very much smaller servings. And um, Noel, uh, Noel, my husband Noel, loved the, the lady who lived on the other side of them, uh, an, an English, Northern England lady who obviously come here years before. And he used to go there after school because she'd give him bread and dripping. Mm. And he, till the day he died, he, he, he never ate it again, of course. Yeah. Not, but, you know, till the day he died, he still talked about how wonderful lots bread and dripping was. <laughs> and dripping, dripping's the fat from the meat, right? Oh, yes, yeah, so like the drippings from the leg of lamb and and that's what we cooked with olive oil you've probably heard this before we, olive oil was bought from the chemist uh, in a tiny little slender elegant bottle usually dark blue like a castor oil bottle was in those days highly prized now slender elegant looking little bottle and it was only used for things like um, ear ache um, I don't know what else really but if anyone and it smelled high heaven if anyone had ever told us that we'd be bathing our food in it before we ate it and our bread and dipping it in, we just couldn't believe it.
reason. Oh my gosh. Well, now, yeah, I'd be like, oh, d- don't use my betadine, Claire. I'm yeah, going to exactly. dip my bread in there. <laughs> yeah. My pseudo cream. Pseudo cream. Yes. I'm going to marinate my lamb in that. One of the reasons why, uh, I don't know whether it was because um, there was not a lot of money, but probably because of the war. But that's why a lot of elderly people, and I'm still, I can't help but do it either. We still keep um, boxes and nice paper and a nice wrapping or something uh, because you couldn't get it. Yeah, you don't, you don't throw anything away, Grandma. Like, if I buy you a gift, like, you will... I, I don't, I always keep everything. You, 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 she, she, you, you peel off the sticky tape and you'll carefully fold the wrapping paper and you put it away in a wrapping paper box in your cupboard because you don't waste anything. I do, yeah. And I'm stunned when it's Christmas time or Mm. uh, Christmas in particular when people are all around opening their presents and after going to great trouble to go and buy the stuff and wrap it up and it's expensive and then you'll see them rip their parcel open, you know, throw, screw the paper up and toss it away and I think... My God, that's about $10 worth of... Monsters. <laughs> more, more than the present was worth. Yeah, well, when Claire gives me a present, I just chuck the whole thing in the bin. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even bother opening it. I know it's going to be garbage. <laughs> Oh, how awful. No, I would never, I would never. I sell it, don't worry. <laughs> no, I quite, I'm getting back to the young people being afraid. I can quite understand that. It must be terrifying. Um, because it, uh, everything we hear and see on television, it's a starkly different world and a terrible outlook constantly, isn't it? And tell us about that. I mean, like, what what did what did consumption of the media look like? You know, when you were a kid during World War Two, when you were, you know, our age, how how would people get the news, and what did it sound like compared to now? The news, yeah. Well, newspapers were delivered. Uh, we had newspapers every night, and I think yes, and certainly Saturdays and Sundays. Postman came twice a day, would you believe, and once on Saturday morning. But I suppose because you know, there were no computers and very few phones. We had a party line. We had to share with some other neighbour in the street. And, of course, if you wanted to make a phone call, you had to wait till they weren't using it, like you see in the movie of the country. And what were we talking about? The So about, uh, about the news, like how, the how news? you use Well, the news, yeah. Well, um, you know, you don't hear about the news long after it happened. New Guinea in no time, and here they all were massed in New Guinea, and we 
we just thought, well, you know, it's only a matter of five minutes and we'll be gone too. And with no help whatsoever, the Americans came, but they were just in just as much trouble trying to survive as we were, not in America, but here because they were here. And, uh, you know, we, I, used, I still dream occasionally. I can see wow. Japanese and Germans marching up Warthol Road and I'm, you know, in formation. And I'm hurtling over paling fences from our backyard to get away. And that must have happened to every child. Oh, and my God. At school, in our, my school is still there, walking distance from where we lived. And under each stair, it was two-story brick building, under each staircase there was what we used to call hat room. Uh, and it was just, a you know, under the stairs sort of thing. Um, brick and concrete, and it had cast iron hooks that you were supposed to hang your, your um, shoulder bag sort of thing we used to have, or I've forgotten what you call them now, and hats. And when we'd have practice air raid drills, and by the way, we all had to take to school a canvas bag with splints and bandages in it. Uh, and if there was a practice drill, we all had to rush into the hat room you know, until they sounded what we called the all clear. And it often amuses me because had there been a bomb, the iron spikes would have gone through everybody. Oh, God. <laughs> and wouldn't help at all. Oh, my God. Like, sorry, yeah. Patricia, how old are you at this stage? Uh, I must have been seven. Oh, my God. Yeah, something like that, yeah. And do you remember hearing, or you know, of course, about the night the Japanese submarines got into the harbour? Yeah. You remember that? Yeah. Or you remember knowing can you tell can you tell us about it, Grandma? Well, they had across the heads because we had no we weren't prepared in any way. All the beaches had barbed wire rolled out across them. And that was, you know, just delay their landing craft. And the different because there wasn't a lot of building around the place, the different uh, cliff faces and you know, rocks and things around the place where water might run down. They poisoned all of that. In case the Japs came, they wouldn't be able to get a drink. Um, and the night that Jap my father was the warden. We used to have wardens, um, like home defence sort of thing. And he was quite macho, macho my father. And uh, lovely Harnett family next door. I married Noel Harnett. Um... The plan was Mr. Harnett would stay home and look after us all, my mother, my brother and I, and the Harnett family. And my father would go out and be the warden with his tin hat and his gas mask and, you know, police the few streets that he was supposed to be looking after. And the night, the, the, they knew in advance, uh, a few people knew in advance that something was wrong, something was going on, because there were no communications and they sort of didn't tell people what was happening. But my father was told to get ready, something was happening. And he turned up at our little school that afternoon to take home as many children as he could in the car. And he did that, it was all home. And a few hours, you can just imagine everybody sitting around thinking, oh my God, what's happening? You know? And I suppose it was about, well, it must have been half past eight or nine or something, clock or something, because Noel, my great Claire's grandfather, uh, was the big boy.
boy in the family, and he was 16, or perhaps a bit older, and no, probably 16, and he was at the local theatre, the pictures, on his own, and the air raid siren went, we all raced into our miss, in the harness family next door, as the plan was, and Noel came, well, you know, absolutely tearing down the street home, <laughs> he was only like Joseph Claire. <laughs> Tearing down the street, and we were told everybody did. I suppose they did all over the world. Take the mattresses off the bed, put them on top of the dining room table. Everyone had a solid wooden dining room table, and sheets all around. And the children wouldn't have to get under the table, so that if the bomb dropped, you know that the table might protect them and fire. Mm. So that's what we did, and. Hours and hours and hours, nothing happened, and everyone was getting more and more frightened. So my mother and grandma, grandma must have suggested, I think, Noel's mother, that they'd have a sherry. <laughs> so they had one or two or three sherries, and they didn't care who came. The Martians could have come. <laughs> Welcome the Japanese. <laughs> Would they like a sherry? <laughs> they, were great, they were great friends. And when the Noel arrived home, Racing down the streets in the theatre, Mr. Harnett, who was very proper, terribly proper, wonderful, beautiful gentleman he was, and he said, no, fill the bath that was drinking water, you know, in case that we were bombed. And there was, you know. So Noel filled the bath, but the next morning, uh, when it was all over, and, you know, we, we just, there was an all clear, and nobody knew what had happened then, and we all went home, but they let the water out of the bath, and it was a great big cake of life boy soap <laughs> in the bottom. Oh, swollen. <laughs> drunk it. Life boy was the thing people used to be in those days. <laughs> Wasted. We didn't know that anything had happened until, you know, I don't, I don't really know when, but there was no such thing as um, television news or radio news or anything like that. And so when, when you look at, I guess, people navigating it now, particularly with their kids, like what, what, what reflections do you have? I mean, you sounded, it sounded like you knew an awful lot at seven about kind of the horrors of the world. What, what, what do you think about what our kids should know now about what's happening right now? Oh, I don't think they should know. I don't think there's any need for them to know. They can't handle it. Uh, as I said, I still have a dream occasionally of that and I can remember distinctly um, I'd go to, when I'd get you know bedtime go to bed seven o'clock seven year old um, my mother's family uh, who she had a mother and a father and three sisters and a younger brother they would come to our house most nights and sit in the lounge room and I could hear every word uh, trying to decide what they would do if the Japs landed, where they would go, what they would do, because everyone was panic-stricken. The Japs had a terrible reputation for what they did. Yeah. And I would be hearing that. So I don't think it's wise to tell the children anything about what's happening. You know, just just make... You'd know what to say, not to... No, I don't know what to say. You have no idea. Well, not to let them think danger lurking and something might happen and yeah. we might all die and all that kind of stuff. But Don't... this is, but even when you say, Patricia, like I think this is so important for us to know um, that you 
as an 88 year old woman had still dream about when you, um the experiences you had when you were seven when you were scared uh yeah. that is so important for us to understand mm. as like as adults who are it doesn't even have to be parents it just to be people around kids and people who um you know uh relay the news to kids it's what do they actually need to know right now and how are they going to process how are their tiny brains going to process this I was at Aldi today and I had to take the girls because Lucas was at work and so I had Olive and Edie with me and constantly the whole time and part of it is like this social expectation I was saying like girls don't touch anything don't touch anything don't touch anything and so they're not touching anything in their you know, the hands, and all kids want to do, as you know, is touch everything. They need to touch something. If they see their favourite colour, they want to touch it. If they see something that looks like a funny texture, they want to touch it. So the whole time they're fighting back this instinctual urge to touch things that look interesting and I'm just barking at them the whole time, don't touch, don't touch, don't touch. And I get to the, I got to the cash register where all of, like, our, um, all the groceries are going down and I was saying to the girls, don't touch anything, don't touch anything. And part of it, again, was because it was, you know, people looking at me look as in, like, why have you got your children here? Um, oh. And I can see why they think that. I understand it. So um, I'm trying to, like, remind them that I'm doing the right thing by saying, don't touch, don't touch anything, no touch, and da, 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 da. And then it got to the point where I was so, like, overwhelmed with all of this um, kind of this, the weight of it all that I leant down into Edie's ear because she was t- she touched the um, she touched the conveyor belt thing, uh, and she's four. <laughs> I leant down to her tiny little ear and I said, Edie, if you touch that, you'll get coronavirus. <laughs> oh, and she and she. Well, I know you have to say that kind of thing. But, yeah, but like what like what you're telling us now is things that seem like we're protecting them right now is like don't do this because of this and like you know putting the fear of god into them is can be like a yeah. lifetime yeah, of I, I, no, I wouldn't be, you know you'll have to think of some other some other way of putting it all i heard someone on the radio talking about this recently too and they said the children can't process that kind of thing at, at their age you know they if you tell them that, they can you and get coronavirus sort of thing. They really can't understand all that. Or maybe, because um, it's not so, it doesn't compare, but my mother used to have me frightened of, um, you know, children in those days would get sores because there was no antiseptics. Uh, and, so you know, she'd always be saying, you know, don't, um, you know, don't do this and don't do that. And, because these children at school would have sores on their knees and in their elbows and around their lips and that kind of stuff. Um, and I don't think that ever bothered me because I, I didn't want to get those. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, had a, you had a friend who died of polio, didn't you, Grandma? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, two doors up. Um, oh, well, there was polio um, epidemic. That was later. Uh, diphtheria was earlier. Uh, my brother had diphtheria. I was four, so he must have been eight. So that must have been, what, if I was four, 1936. Um, there was a real epidemic of diphtheria. His his particular friend's brother died with it, and Buddy got it. 
And because I was only four, I was sent away to live with my grandmother, my mother's mother and family. I don't know for how long. I remember I had my fourth birthday there. Um, and my uncle, whom I love dearly, used to um, open the front door and he said, now you can't come in unless you've got a present. <laughs> but, um, you know, that was absolutely terrible time, the diphtheria, because you can imagine now if you get something, you get penicillin or an antibiotic or something, and it's fixed. But then there was nothing, even even later, um, uh, until I think even when I first went to high school. Um, I still used to get a lot of bronchitis, and there was no such thing as an amoxicillin tablet or anything. You'd get some um, um, sulfalinamide, or I never know whether it's linamide or nilamide, sulfalinamide, which was like looked like turmeric mm. or turmeric. Uh, that colour, a tiny little bit of that on the end of a spoon, it was like gunpowder, shocking stuff. And you have to swallow that with a little bit of honey or something. Yes. And that must have yeah. done some to the germ. But, um, I mean, the, the business about the children, telling the children, had to try very hard not to frighten them because... Mm -hmm. Because yeah. I imagine for a lot of kids it's not that fun being at home. They, the idea of being at home all the time would be fun. But the reality of being at home all the time when your parents are both working or, no. or you know, could be whatever situation they're in, it's right. there. Because, you know, most of the thing about school is their companionship, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, Stevie it's keeps having it. these breakdowns where she accuses me of lying. She's like, the government isn't making me stay at home. You're making me stay at home. She needs a place to direct that anger and I don't know what to do because, you know, um, I don't know how to parent that and so I just tell her that it's coronavirus. Like, oh, I don't need a scapegoat, right? <laughs> you, can, you can just say, and it's true, as you would have heard today, they're working on a, uh, what do they call it, an immunisation thing and they say it could be very close and you can just sort of dwell on that a bit and until we get that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, okay, you're right. Okay, so focus more on the positive stuff. And yeah. with them. Like this is not this will not last forever. Mm. But I think I think the struggle with for kids is that a like twenty four hours feels like a whole year. Yeah. And oh, then, of course it does. Yes. You know, when you it, say you're at home it, for a whole term, terribly unfortunate thing to happen to to in anybody's lifetime. This kind of thing that we we haven't got anything to stop it and. It's just, we'll just all have to live on hope. But, and this won't be the last one that, you know, that I didn't even know about SARS and NERS or whatever it is, but we all know about it now. And probably as time goes on, there'll be other things like this. So we just have to ramp up all the things that matter. And if you look, I mean, if you look at your life, Grandma, like, and you think about all the things that you've seen and endured... Where where do you put this? How do you how do you kind of? This is worse, I suppose, because it can do such terrible things. Picking up from what you <laughs> like, the, what you've been saying is that fear is very much what we absorb from what's around us. And I guess when you're, I guess when you're hearing things right now and you're watching people respond to the current pandemic and the current global crisis. What, what what have you learned about fear? What have you learned about the way that people live in the face of fear? 
just described Claire and then me and then <laughs> well, what a good viewer you are then. yeah it was incredible each other, yeah yeah and then the last you just forgot to mention that the person who is unafraid was the winner but that's cool I, I, <laughs> I get it good well, love me to talk to you both thank, thank you, you so Patricia. much for your time oh my great pleasure I'm very flattered oh no oh, oh yes. you need famous yeah, I hear best. about you all the time, Bron, oh. and I'm very, very grateful for you too. Oh, I love, love you, Patricia. You're the best. Thank you so much. We'll send you the episode. Okay, oh, lovely. Oh. 